0: Hey everyone, I have no idea how to follow that epic opening video. Uh, I'm somewhat resisting the urge to yell, freedom! So maybe I'll take the tone in a little different direction with this. So in case you don't know, uh, that's my son Levi enjoying a free to be awesome shirt. And he's now three and a half, Uh, not just three, the half is apparently important. Um, On Sundays, he's in the kids' area, and I want to give a special shout-out to those serving with the kids. I I can't thank them enough for teaching Levi and the other kids about Jesus in a way that they can enjoy and understand, and for demonstrating and teaching the simple truth that God loves us and has provided a way for us to know him. Anyway, thank you for joining me um, by video this morning as I have the privilege of finishing up our Summer Freedom Series. For the past 11 weeks, we've talked about freedom from things like idolatry, sin, guilt, shame, legalism, love of money, isolation, condemnation, and fear. And we've also covered things that we've been freed for, like worship, community, being part of God's kingdom, and being united with Christ. Today, I'd like to talk about one more thing we're free to do in Jesus, to follow him. Now, I'd like to start by opening up our time in prayer. God, I just ask that you help us to focus, um, help us to listen to Jesus, who he's the word, and help us to see things as they are, um, to see clearly as we look at what it means to to follow you and um, what that means for us. Uh, We we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Uh, today we're going to take a look at a few people who encountered Jesus, their response, uh, Jesus' response, and finally, our response. Now, but first, I have a little bit of a silly confession to make. Uh, I'm a bit of a geek. Amazing, I know. Uh, Where some people ask, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek, my my answer is basically yes. Um, The fun part about sci-fi for me, besides the fact it involves, you know, space travel and what-if scenarios, I really like how sci-fi asks interesting questions and it challenges the viewer with, what would you do in this scenario? Now, dating myself a little bit as a uh, geriatric millennial, uh, one of my favorite sci-fi shows was actually Babylon 5 from the 90s. Now, it was a space opera about a bunch of different aliens uh, living on a space station trying to get uh, get along. And as a typical high schooler would, I used to get up at 6 a.m. on Saturday mornings to watch it. Now, just so you don't think I'm crazy, it actually came on at 5 a.m., but as everyone knows, that's way too early to get up, so I'd record it on VHS, again dating myself, uh, and then watch it without commercial breaks starting at 6. Okay, what do you. No, I'm not crazy. See, <clears throat> Babylon 5 was a fun show with all the good sci fi staples. You know, it had hyperspace, aliens, wars with space battles, prophecies, betrayal. Uh, forgiveness, and a little time travel thrown in. But two of the strongest questions it continually asked were, who are you and what do you want? I mean, the characters are asked these questions repeatedly and in different scenarios, uh, with some choosing better than others throughout the series. They're actually really hard and deeply individual questions. Well, who are you? Well, I'm Daniel. Sure, that's my name, but it doesn't really tell you much about me. My last name would bring more family stories with it, but does it really help to define my identity? Um, I'm also a software engineer, but is that really core to who I am? I mean, what happens to my identity if I were to do something else? Is it my role as a son or a husband or a parent that defines me? Or is that me putting my identity in other people? Is it in the descriptors I claim about myself? What happens if like in the book of Job in the Bible, What if I were to lose everything? Who would I be then with everything stripped away? It's a good question. The other one that they ask in the series is, is what do you want? Now this might be somewhat easier, but hearing your own answers can somewhat sound shallow or unsatisfying when we're honest. I mean, do I want the 1950s American dream of a nice job, a house, and 2.2 kids? Or as Spencer talked about a few weeks ago, is it money that I want? Do I want a, a comfy or early retirement? Or is it experiences and achievement, You know, like training and hiking a certain mountain? Or maybe it's travel and tourism to a certain place. Or maybe it's building a Fortune 500 company and leaving a reputation and a legacy. What's on your bucket list? Now this morning, I wanna keep those questions in mind as we go on a little bit of a journey, starting with Jesus' parable of the sower and the soils in Mark 4, spending most of our time in Luke 9, and then looking at a few Old Testament kings before focusing on a disciple in Luke 23. All right, so let's start in Mark 4, and uh, we'll start from verse 3. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell onto good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and a hundredfold. So Jesus speaks in a parable using farming, growing grain as his basis for explaining truth here. And in the 21st century, we're a bit removed from the the cultural context. In this parable, the seed is constant, but there are two variables. Jesus points to soil and time. And what's nice about this one is that immediately following the parable, we actually have Jesus' explanation recorded as well. So let's look starting in verse 14. The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown when they hear. Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those who are, that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So the word here is the gospel, the good news that God's kingdom is at hand, that we can repent, follow, and love him. Now, it's easy for our hearts to grow hard like the first soil, to read this and to hear it every week and say, yeah, I know that already. Well, through Jesus, we can have peace with God. That's, that's stunning. And his word in our hearts can grow into a hundredfold crop and into eternal life with him. It's a gift given by the sower, and with the right soil, we can be transformed from the inside out. And also notice that, that God is generous here. He sows the seed even in places where it doesn't end up growing. So when we look at the, the identity question of, well, who are you in light of this parable? What we're asking is, well, which soil am I? Good question. But notice it's also not something you can know immediately. The second variable here is time. Now some of the soils look the same for a while, and we've got to be on our guard for the deceptiveness of sin in our own lives and pray that God will grow us. So let's use this as our foundation. We'll look at a few interactions and try to ask, what, which soil do we see as we turn over to Luke 9 and look at three disciples and their opportunity to follow Jesus? Now, I'll read the whole passage first. Luke 9, 57-62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So in this short passage, we've got three quick interactions. I also find it really interesting that the text doesn't explicitly tell us which choice each man made after Jesus responded to each. But I think that's that's because the important lesson is in what Jesus says, not necessarily the final responses of each man. So let's take a closer look at each. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this starts out well. It seems like Jesus just made a convert. We've got someone who's interested in joining Jesus. But where you and I don't know the context, and we certainly don't know the details about this man's life, we can observe that Jesus responds very specifically. See, in the Gospels, Jesus meets people where they're at, speaking with grace and truth to draw draw out underlying issues. To those who appeared most religious on the outside, he points out legalism and lack of faith. But to those who are broken and need healing, like the paralyzed man in Luke 5, Jesus shows both forgiveness and grace. So for this man who says, I will follow you wherever you go, what's Jesus' very specific response? And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus responds with a warning. Jesus warns the man that following him isn't going to be easy, that following Jesus isn't going to be a particularly comfortable journey, that Jesus isn't going to be settling down. Why is this important? Well, Jesus is being honest about what he's not offering. He's not offering a comfortable or easy life. This response also reveals something about the man's heart too. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds by saying, the wearer isn't going to be what you expect. Jesus sees past what the man sees to unrealistic expectations of what following Jesus will be like and possibly what he really cares about. Summed up, I mean, Jesus' response is this, your priorities are out of alignment. Jesus is saying that following him isn't going to lead to prosperity in a big house. He's not offering the man a great life now. He's he's offering freedom from materialism and comfort because he has something better in mind. If we're his, if we're part of his kingdom, then we're all in. Galatians four says that in Christ, we're heirs, adopted as sons, children of God. John ten says that he's the good shepherd and we're his sheep, that Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. God doesn't intend for following him to be our hobby. It's supposed to be our first and our highest calling. As Deuteronomy 6:5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Following Jesus, loving God is an all-in endeavor. This isn't to say that we can't have doubts, bad days, distractions, and struggles with sin. God is big enough to handle our questions and our struggles. He loves us. But it's important that we come to him because we want to know him, not because we think God will help us to get what we really want. My point is this, following Jesus isn't the means to an end. Following Jesus will help you to know Jesus. Have you experienced Jesus' freedom from sin, guilt, selfishness, despair, or loneliness? If so, then you know that he doesn't fill us with something else. God is our refuge. He's the one who satisfies. Having the opportunity to to follow Jesus is about being able to know who he is. As Paul writes to the Philippians in Philippians 3:7 through 11, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, when I read these words from Paul, I hear him saying, all in. Like nothing else matters to him because Jesus offers freedom, the chance to share in both his suffering and his resurrection. What does Paul want? To know Jesus and to make him known. That's it. So when Jesus warns the first man in Luke 9, he's cautioning against a heart that sees following him as a means to an end. Jesus is warning about rocky ground. When the man seems excited and joyful about following Jesus here, without a strong root of repentance planted in good soil, he's gonna wither when the hard times come. His priorities are out of alignment. This first man is looking for comfort and he's not gonna like it when it gets hard because Jesus is pointing out his heart heart is rocky soil. So let's look at the second man. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Sounds a little harsh, right? I mean, we've also got to notice that unlike the first man, Jesus is the one who initiates this interaction. And Jesus says, follow me same as he said to the 12 named disciples, one of which eventually betrays him for money, and a few others that would turn him down up front, like the rich man in Luke 18. Now, I think it's also important to point out that something that the commentators don't think this man's father is actually dead yet. I mean, they're not suggesting the guy's lying, but instead that he wants to care for his father until he passes. It's an indeterminate period of time, a family responsibility. He's saying, I I can't yet, Jesus. I want to take care for my dad while I still can. I mean, that, that sounds pretty reasonable, honoring his father, his family duty, and then joining up with Jesus. See, he wants to be a responsible person, a good son. His father is important to him. Who this man is, his identity is to a certain extent rooted in his family. See, the issue here isn't choosing something bad over Jesus, it's choosing something good over his Lord. Notice the man calls Jesus Lord. He acknowledges Jesus' authority, but he's still not all in. Not in the same place as the Apostle Paul when he wrote his letter to the Philippians. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer sounds harsh, and it is a big ask, but can you feel the urgency here? I mean, Jesus isn't saying that people shouldn't care for their parents. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, the good news of the gospel is an urgent message. And it's really important that we see Jesus doesn't ask the same thing of everyone. For the rich man in Luke 18, he actually asks the man to do something first before following him, sell his possessions. But Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell their stuff first. In terms of the soils we looked at at the beginning, let's take a look at this again. Mark 4:18. And others are the ones sown among thorns, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. For this man, the thorns aren't riches or power like we might usually think of. I mean, following Jesus would mean literally following him and leaving his father behind, something that would have a high cost to at least one important relationship. But the opportunity cost of not following Jesus is higher. And I I think Jesus is helping to show the man that he's making his dad or settling his dad's affairs more important than following his Lord's call. Jesus' offer has urgency. The offer to literally follow him, to walk with him on his journey around Judea, it's got an expiration date. And the man presumes that later is an option. So to the first guy who offered to follow Jesus, his message was, your, your priorities are out of alignment. There was rocky soil. To the second guy, whose Lord asked him to follow, Jesus' message is that your priorities are out of alignment. There were thorns, the cares and concerns focused around his dad. So let's take a look at the third man, but my guess is you can probably see where this is going. Luke 9:61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, this man calls Jesus Lord, but instead of asking for an indefinite delay before joining Jesus, the man just wants to head home and say goodbye. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But then Jesus responds with the harshest words, words of all. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. To the third man, Jesus is again saying, your priorities are out of alignment. There's again, thorny soil, an attitude of, hold on Jesus, just one more thing and then I'll follow you. Now this one is is by far the hardest for me. If you can't guess why, it's because I am this man. I grew up in the church. I heard about Jesus early on. I believed early on. And while growing up, I came with all these, well, first let me do this and then I'll follow you, Jesus. Because who was I? Well, a follower of Jesus and also a good kid. What did I want? Well, computer games, puzzles, sci-fi, and yeah, I wanted to follow Jesus somewhat. But see, it would certainly be easier for me to read my Bible in the morning when I could set my own schedule, right? Never mind that, as I mentioned earlier, I actually managed to get up every Saturday morning at 6 a.m. to watch Babylon 5 and play computer games. I told myself it would be much easier when I went to college and I was in control of my time. Guess what? It wasn't. But of course, I had a reason there too. This was because I had roommates and homework, and when I got my own apartment, well well, then I'd be able to follow Jesus better. Except that I didn't, because that's not what I really wanted. I wanted to find the one to get married, and I told myself that when I got married, well then I would be better at praying because I'd have to lead and serve my family. But I'm sure you can guess what the result was here as well. And, And Sarah could tell you too, I wasn't. See, the problem wasn't external factors or external motivation, it was internal. It was a heart problem. It was a lack of faith, a lack of trusting that Jesus is not only enough, he's everything. See, my perspective was out of alignment. God is the one who provides true joy and contentment. The crazy part, though, is that I still do the same thing. I've stood up here before and I've taught before, and yet there are still days when I'm not excited about reading the word of God. Times when I'd rather go back to playing computer games or watching shows on Netflix rather than spend time with my Lord in prayer. So when Jesus says here, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, that's me. I'm not fit for the kingdom of God. Perhaps you can see the point here, that the kingdom of God is not about us being good enough. I'm not fit for the kingdom of God. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, the overwhelming truth of God's grace is that he loves us right now. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Let me say that again. The overwhelming truth of God's grace is he loves us right now. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. So who are we? Who are you? Who am I? What identity can we claim that's not going to wash away like sand and slip right through our fingers? What identity can be solid in the face of success and failure, of hardship and loss? Well, we can be God's children. In Jesus, we've been given this freedom, as John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. See, Jesus gave these three men in, in Luke 9 the chance to follow him like literally to walk alongside him as he traveled, taught, and healed people in first century Judea. Now, today, Jesus still gives us the opportunity to follow him daily, although not quite so literally. We also know of his death on a Roman cross, and we know of his resurrection on the third day. We know of his commands to love one another and make disciples, and we know that one day he'll be coming back. But like the people we read about in the Bible, For each of us, the asks will look a little different. The cost will be different because each of us has a different heart, different soil with different priorities. And God meets us where we're at, but there's also a certain urgency to the good news, and he changes us as he grows his word in us. So as we come to the end of the Freedom Series, I'd like to ask us to be a little introspective, to be honest and authentic. We're all here with different experiences and different backgrounds. Some of us might have trouble opening up having been burned many times before, but it's still worth being honest with one another so that we can encourage each other in pursuing Jesus and making God our first priority. Who are you and what do you want? What has God freed you from? And is there anything keeping you from being all in for Jesus? these likely don't have easy answers. And for me, I'm kind of a type A person, one who seeks to, to point to my own achievements or, or experiences. So a good place for me to start at least is with my bucket list or my goals. Are any of them counter to following Jesus? Or do I make pursuing any of them more important than pursuing Jesus? Am I holding back or resisting God's word because it requires faith or it's uncomfortable? Like the three men we looked at, are my priorities out of alignment? Is it okay for me to dream of going into orbit someday? I mean, serious. (laughs) Do I give because I love Jesus? Or is it because I want to think I'm a generous person? Do I truly love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do I love me more? When everything is stripped away, who am I? See, I've recently enjoyed uh, seeing the gospel in the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles. It's interesting to see how the Bible keeps record of the kings, right? What's important is, you know, what's in the introduction? What's, what's in the history? Sometimes it can feel a little dry reading about, you know, how long different kings lived. But I want you to take a look at me with me at uh, a few examples. Also, to anyone who knows Hebrew, uh, here's your warning. I'm probably about to butcher a bunch of names. I'm sorry. <clears throat> All right, 2 Kings 12, uh, 1 through 3. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. Okay, Second Kings 14. In the second year of Joash, the son of Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like as David his father. He did in all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places 2 kings 15 in the 27th year of jeroboam king of israel azariah son of amaziah king of judah began to reign he was 16 years old when he began to reign and he reigned 52 years in jerusalem his mother's name was jecolia of jerusalem and he did what was right in the eyes of the lord according to all that his father amaziah had done nevertheless the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, each history of a king here starts with the vitals. You know, when they came to power, who their mom was, how old they were. And here's the critical part. Whether or not they did what was right or what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did they follow the greatest command? Did they love God completely? These three examples were still, were relatively good kings in the midst of a whole lot of fails. But even still, the text points out that, that worship continued at the high places. These high places were not what God had commanded, where God had commanded them to worship. I mean, some of this worship was even of other gods. Tearing down the high places was something even some of the faithful kings didn't do, an area where they weren't all in. What we see throughout Kings and Chronicles is a list of flawed human kings. It helps to contrast with what we see in Jesus, a perfect king. A king that gave up everything, perfectly fulfilling the greatest command as he went all in for us. In Philippians 2, starting in verse six, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. The best of the Old Testament kings only foreshadow the perfect king, Jesus. And as Christians, we want to know him and become more like him. So if you're sitting here today and not really sure about Jesus, not really sure he's worth following because you've been turned off by me or any of his followers, please take another look at the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because the foundation of our faith, it's not me and it's not other Christians. It's Jesus. Jesus. Now, we started by looking at the parable of the sower and the soils, but we haven't looked at an example of yet of what happened when Jesus encountered good soil, soil that was prepared and ready. So turn with me to Luke 23, 39 through 43. One of the criminals who who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man is a criminal, pleading guilty in the face of his death sentence. And yet, this man sees Jesus for who he is, a king, a king unjustly sentenced to die, but with power that extends beyond death. I mean, this man is all in, ready to follow Jesus, and yet he's completely immobilized, hanging on a cross next to Jesus. How can this man, this criminal on a cross, be free to follow Jesus? Look at Jesus' response. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This, heart's man, this man's heart is the good soil. God's prepared it. There's no question here about priorities. This criminal had nothing but his faith, but that was everything. And while this man's journey with Jesus started as they were both dying on Roman crosses, it didn't end there. Jesus didn't stay dead, and Jesus guarantees this man the opportunity to follow him, to be with him. See, there's such amazing hope here in the midst of what appears to be the end of the line, and it provides hope for each of us, even in our toughest times. Perhaps it's, It's through the life he's lived, because of his journey, that it's amazing how he's ready to meet Jesus here in his final hours. God's brought him to repentance, to seeing Jesus as king and understanding the importance of forgiveness and the amazing promise of being part of his kingdom. See, today we've looked at a few different kinds of soil and a few different interactions Jesus had with people who were wanting to follow him. There was rocky soil that wasn't ready for life to get hard. There was thorny soil that took Jesus for granted and cared more about other concerns. But there was also good soil that was ready to grow in the hope of the gospel. Today, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what kind of soil your heart is, hard, rocky, thorny, or ready to grow. I don't know if your priorities are out of alignment, as mine so frequently are. But there's good news. We can still respond to Jesus. His words both challenge us and offer us profound hope. And we can be honest about who we are and what we really want, and then probably to repent and change direction and take whatever the next step is in following Jesus more wholeheartedly. See, we can call him Lord and receive freedom from sin, guilt, shame, condemnation, idols, isolation, legalism, and the love of money, the fear of death, and from trying to be our own Lord. In Jesus, we're free to be children of God. We're free to love and worship him in spirit and truth because he is the resurrection and the life. So for the, some of the disciples we read about today, we, we don't know what they chose after Jesus' responses. And for us, we don't typically look at our own lives like this, except sometimes on Sundays. My hope is that we can continually find the freedom to turn toward Jesus. I'd like to, to close us in prayer, but after that, I'm going to put up a, a slide with three questions on it. They're, they're there for us to um, discuss with whoever you might be watching this with. And the questions are, what's one thing on your bucket list? Perhaps something a little unique. And then going deeper, what's something that God's granted you freedom from? And third, is there something perhaps God is asking you to do or set aside to follow him because he loves you and wants you to to know him better? Thanks again for listening this week as I got to speak and close out our freedom series. And let me just close this in prayer right now. God, Thank you for sending your son to save us from our sins and thank you for um, adopting us into your family because of your love for us and it being just more than we can possibly know. Thank you that following you isn't something we do alone, but it's something that we can do with others. And I pray that you help us to be open and honest, um, that you would help us to be real and turn away from what we want and looking to you about who you are and what you want. Thanks for your spirit, your word, and um, for your grace to us. Through Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks.